Please open your Bible to Matthew 22. Or if you want to open to Matthew 23, we're going to be reading the end of Matthew 22. So that's a little shortcut for you. Matthew 22. And uh, Chris, I appreciate your prayer. And not that it was uh, in any way insufficient, but I, I want to pray for us once again. Because we are entirely dependent on the Spirit as Chris just prayed. Um, and so let's just acknowledge that together. Almighty God, we come before you as a people with hearts that can be prone to wander, that can be wayward, that can, that can ignore you and the things that you say. But as we gather together, you are with us and you speak to us through your word. We want to have minds and hearts and eyes and ears that recognize that your law is perfect, reviving the soul. That your testimony is sure, making wise the simple. That your precepts are right, rejoicing the heart. That your commandments are pure, enlightening the eyes. That that the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. That your rules are true and righteous altogether. Lord, may we desire your word more than gold. May we know it to be sweeter than honey. May we be warned where appropriate by your word. And Lord, help us to experience the joy of keeping your word where there is great reward. Spirit, we need you to hear what you have to say to us this morning. And Jesus, be big as we look to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I think it's so easy to take for granted the incredible privilege that we have as we get to open up this book and read these words. Uh, this, this book, it's made up of 66 smaller books written by around 40 different people, written over about 1,500 years in different languages. Yet it all tells one story. And when we, read, when we read this book, when we listen to this book, it's not like we're reading a book of quotes, just looking for one to jump out off the page at us. It's not like uh, we're going through a pile of fortune cookies, like cracking each one open and be like, oh, that doesn't, uh, no, nope, don't want that one. Oh, this one, this one's good. I'll hold on to this one. Let me put it in my pocket. That's not what we're doing as we come to God's Word. We are reading a story. Now, we live and, and hear stories. We live out and hear stories all of the time. And one of the most significant stories in our culture today is the story of progress. We live in a culture that believes things will just, they'll just get better over time, that we will just get better over time. And everything from flushing toilets to smartphones tell us this story of progress. And so if you're sick, medicine tells us, you know, if you just hold on long enough, there will be a cure. Or if we want to accumulate wealth, investors tell us, you know, just be patient and the market will turn around or the market will continue to grow. If you have a problem, technology is telling us that our answer is, it's just right around the corner. Just wait a few years. We live in this culture that tends to think that tomorrow will be better than today. Progress and prosperity are these inevitable facts of life. This is the story of our culture. And this story of progress is a myth. Because it turns our eyes in upon ourselves and sees us as our own savior, as our own deliverer, as the answer. It says that over time we will have the answers. We will establish peace and justice on earth. This is one of the stories that our culture lives by 
today. But when we open up God's word, we're being told another story. It's not just another story that stands alongside other stories. We're being told the one true story. We're being told a story that is, is reality-defining for all things, for all time. And that's not an overstatement. That's nuts. We are being told this story that is defining of all of reality for all of time. And this story is about God. More specifically, it's a story about God coming to humanity to be in relationship with us. It's about God loving and choosing and rescuing and redeeming a people for His glory. And our task in coming to this book, whether it's on a Sunday morning or whether it's on Monday morning, our task in coming to this book is to become a part of this story. Of God's story. That's all about His glory. Now over the last several weeks, we've been witnesses, as we've made our way through Matthew, witnesses to this escalating conflict between Jesus and the temple leaders. And the temple leaders, the elders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they've all brought questions to, de- questions to Jesus. They've brought questions to challenge him, to seek to discredit him. To, they want to make him look like a fool. Why? Why do they want to make him look like a fool? Well, they see themselves as a part of a much bigger story. That's what's informing all that they're doing. In fact, they saw themselves as those responsible to keep and protect this story. And the story that they held to is the one that centers on the God of creation and the special relationship He has with His people. It's the story of the Old Testament that we can all read right here in front of us. And it's the true story. It's an astonishing story. This is what they held to. This is what they wanted to protect. And so this is why they come to Jesus with all of these questions, seeking to challenge Him. The story begins in a garden where God, the Creator of all, makes this perfect garden, declaring it good. And He puts humanity in the middle of it to work it and to keep it. And as you all know, things didn't stay that way, did they? No. Man fell. Man sinned. And amidst, in the midst of the fall, in the midst of this sin, as God brings the curse to the serpent and to the man and the woman. In Genesis 3.15, as, as he's speaking to the serpent, God says that the woman's offspring will crush the head of the serpent. And then the narrative continues with humanity holding on to this, this hope that one day the offspring of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. And so we make our way through Noah and all of humanity is wiped out except for Noah and his family. God, God sustains them. He preserves them. He makes a covenant with them to never destroy humanity again in that way. Puts the rainbow in the sky. And then we fast forward several generations later and we, we come to Abraham. This guy who is just a wanderer, a wandering moon worshiper. And God chooses Abraham to be in relationship with Abraham, and he makes a covenant with Abraham, and he promises him that he will make him a great nation that will be a blessing to all peoples, and that he will give him a land. And just as his descendants, they they are multiplying Isaac and Jacob and all of Jacob's sons, 
And then they end up in Egypt. And it seems like the Lord has forgotten them. And 400 years later, after, after being put under, subjected to slavery, God delivers them through Moses. And he delivers them out of Egypt and he brings them into the promised land. And things just seem like they're getting better and better. And then as Israel grows as a nation, Israel wants a king. And God gives them a king. And ultimately, he gives them a king in David. And he makes this covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this is what the Lord says to David in verse 12, beginning in verse 12. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, so after David dies, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So a descendant of David, David, God is going to establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David's son is going to be a king and God is going to establish his kingdom forever. And God says to David, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And then he says this in verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And so David has this promise that he gets to hold on to. That his son will be God's king forever. It's remarkable. But all doesn't go well for this people. Because they stray from the law of God, which was perfect. They reject God. And, and every king that comes after David fails. And fails miserably. So much so that, that the people are brought under judgment and they're exiled. They're sent out of the land that was promised to them. And so far from being a dominant nation, respected and revered, they are now exiled. In the kingdom, they're divided, they're overtaken, they're taken out of this land, and the glory of David's kingdom just seemed to be gone for hundreds and hundreds of years. And in this time, God raised up prophets to speak to his people, to give them hope in their exile, in their suffering. And so Jeremiah, he prophesies this in Jeremiah 23, verse 5. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In the land, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This promise God made to his people. The days are coming when a descendant of David will rule and reign. The people of God will be saved and safe. These days are coming, declares the Lord. And this one who is coming, he's known as the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed ones. And so the people of Israel, they, they wait and they wait and they look, expecting this promised one, this son of David. Now eventually they're, they're brought back from exile to the land that was promised them. So maybe this is the time, maybe this is the time that God raises up this king, this son of David who's going to rule and reign. But no, the glory of Israel fell far short of what it once was. Israel remained subject to foreign rulers. And so 2,000 years ago, here are these Pharisees, these 
keepers and protectors and teachers of this story living in Jerusalem under Roman subjection. And they continued waiting for Christ to come. They waited and they hoped. And when this carpenter from Nazareth, Jesus, shows up, they despise the things he says and does. They hate the way people respond to him, especially as he enters Jerusalem on that colt. They watch as the people, they spread out their cloaks before him on the road, and they wave branches. And and you know what they shouted? They shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what the people were saying in the streets of Jerusalem. But the Pharisees, again, the, the, the keepers and the teachers of God's story, they stand by waiting for the king to come. And it's in this moment of waiting that Jesus, in his mercy, he comes to the Pharisees with a question. So the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the the temple priests, they've all been questioning Jesus. And now Jesus asks them one question. Look with me at Matthew 22, verse 41. This is the Word of God. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now Jesus asked this, this important question about ancestry, about the father of the one the Pharisees have been waiting for. They've been waiting for the Christ. They've been waiting for the Messiah. So from what great man will he descend from? And the Pharisees answer in verse 42. We can see it right there. They said to him, the son of David. This was the expectation. This was the promise. The Messiah would be a son of David. He would rule and reign forever and ever. The entire Old Testament story points to this. Isaiah and and Jeremiah, they prophesy of it. The Messiah will be the son of David. Now we may be wondering here, like, why does Jesus go here? The Pharisees get this. What's going on? What's the big deal? Well, this is where I think we need to step away a bit from our our time and that, that culture, the cultural story of progress that we tell ourselves and consider the culture of Jesus's day. You see, our culture of progress, it affects our imaginations. When we consider what's possible, when we consider what's best, we look ahead and we imagine what life will be like in 10 or 20 or 100 years. But the culture of Jesus' day, especially in Jerusalem, it was decidedly different from that. Imaginations were shaped by looking back. Instead of imagining what life will be like in 10 or 20 or 100 years, this culture imagined what life used to be like, 700 or a thousand years ago, when David was on his throne. Imagining the possibilities of life, understanding identity and meaning, they were, they were forged by looking back. And no one was greater than their ancestors. And in the story of Israel, no one was greater than David. And so when the Pharisees answer that the Christ will be David's son, Jesus comes back to them with, with a question. Look at verse 43. Jesus said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is it, how is he his son? Now Jesus responds to the answer of the Pharisees with this follow-up question, which challenges their hope, that challenges their understanding of reality. And what he does here is he quotes from Psalm 110. 
Psalm 110 is a psalm that the Pharisees knew well. And this psalm is what's called a messianic psalm, meaning it it tells of, it speaks of the Messiah. And the Pharisees, they knew and would have taught that this psalm was about the coming Messiah. This psalm was about David's son. This is all stuff the Pharisees agreed with Jesus on. And here, Jesus confronts them with a problem that they must deal with. If this psalm is about the Messiah, how is it that David calls him Lord? Do you see it there in verse 44? David writes in the Spirit, as Jesus says, which attests to the fact that all Scripture is breathed out by God, which is remarkable. David writes this, he says in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord. So we've got the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, saying to David's Lord, to the Messiah, the Christ. Remember, the Messiah is David's son, and so now David, David is calling his son, his descendant, his Lord. Like This was beyond what Hebrews were capable of imagining. Jesus doesn't assert that the Pharisees are wrong in their understanding. He only points out that their understanding is incomplete. The Pharisees have been waiting and waiting for David's son to show up. They've been waiting for and expecting this son of David. As if someone is going to come along like David and fill his shoes. They're waiting for and expecting a warrior king like David who will deliver them from Roman oppression and restore them to their past glory. That's what they're waiting for. That's what they're looking for. And Jesus is certainly not that. But David calls this son Lord. Psalm 110 shows that David knew someone was coming after him who was not just like him, who was not in David's image, but much greater than him, so much greater than him. And the Pharisees have failed to recognize this reality. Now look, in in this verse, through Jesus' question, what Psalm 110 says about Jesus himself. Consider what Jesus says about himself right here. So David records, the Lord said to my Lord, this is what God says to Jesus, sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand. Now if you Read through the New Testament in particular, you're going to see this phrase come up again and again. Psalm 110 verse 1 is actually the most quoted verse in the New Testament. Most quoted in the New Testament of the Old Testament. Did that make any sense to anybody? All right, great. Just making sure. (laughs) Psalm 110.1, it's all over the place. Paul uses it. Peter uses it in Acts 2. The writer of Hebrews uses it. It's all over the place. And this idea of Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of God is everywhere. Why is he, what what does that mean, sitting at my right hand? I mean, I I sit down at my dinner table and I have someone sitting on my right and my left. Do I love the one on my right more than the left? Eh, maybe. Sorry, kids. (laughs) Fortunately, the one sitting on my right didn't even notice that I said that, so that's great. (laughs) No, it has nothing to do with that. It speaks to this place of utmost honor, of highest authority. And this is where David's Lord is seated. In this case, David is saying that God is going to give his Lord a seat much higher than his own. Much higher than his own. So the royal king, David, 
Again, I mean, think about the imagination of these Pharisees. David is as royal as royal gets. Yet there is one coming after him who's more royal than him. It's remarkable. And that one is Jesus, seated at his right hand. And just one other small thing about being seated at his right hand implies two things. One, do you know who sits? Judges sit. Judges sit in authority and they pronounce judgments. Jesus is that judge, the righteous judge. Not only that, but those who sit are those who have completed their work. They're all done. And when Jesus came and sacrificed himself on the cross, he sat down. He was done. It is finished. Thanks be to God. So there is Jesus seated at God's right hand. And then look at the next phrase which is just a wonderful phrase. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now there's, there's a few things that we can observe about this. The first is the fact that he is going to have enemies put under his feet means that he has enemies. Right? Jesus is one who is opposed. There are those who stand against him. And that's what's happening right now. That's what's playing out in Matthew 22. Sadducees, temple priests, Pharisees, elders, they come before him opposing Jesus. Not only is Jesus opposed by these, but all of uh, Matthew has been attesting to the opposition that Jesus faces. And we see this most poignantly in Matthew 4 when Satan comes to tempt Jesus. Jesus is opposed. He has enemies. But that's not the end of the story. These enemies are going to be put under Jesus' feet once and for all. One day, all opposition that Jesus faces will be overcome completely, entirely. It's done. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Oh, death, where's your sting? Because indeed, Jesus Christ is victorious over all forevermore. Thanks be to God. This is what Jesus says about himself as he quotes from Psalm 110. And the Pharisees... I couldn't think of a better word than flummoxed. But they were flummoxed by Jesus' response. Dumbfounded. Flabbergasted. Look at verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus was and remains undefeated. I mean, we've, we talked about in Jerusalem during this Passover week. We're, we're Tuesday of Holy Week, Tuesday of the Passover. And this was a time where, I mean, the Pharisees, they, they were there to showcase their wisdom. Like this was Super Bowl week for them. All these people are traveling in, and now they get to show really all they've got. And Jesus, again and again and again, has defeated the wisdom of the wise. Put them to shame, to open shame. You see, the Pharisees' problem was not that they didn't know the right story. It was that they were looking, as they were looking for the Messiah, their sights were set too low. They were looking for David when all along they should have been looking for Jesus. They were looking for a warrior king when they should have been looking for a servant king who has come to take away the sins of the world. They knew this Messiah would be the son of David, but they failed to recognize that he would be the very son of God. 
When Jesus comes to the Pharisees and asks, what do you think about the Christ? The Pharisees were only half right. And being half right was not enough to save their souls. Because they were looking for the wrong person, they imagined the wrong Messiah. And so they didn't see Jesus at all. And even worse than that, they opposed him. But Jesus, in his mercy and grace, we've got, we have to recognize that he indeed, as Chris was praying earlier, he is slow to anger. And he came to them with the one question that they should have been asking. There are all kinds of questions that we like to distract ourselves with. All kinds of questions that can keep us from getting to the point. So the, the, this is what the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the temple leaders, they were all trying to do. They asked about important things, but not the important thing. So they asked him about, what about taxes and government? I mean, what do we do there? Or what about the resurrection? Or what about the law? All things that matter. Not irrelevant, but not the thing that matters. And we can at times do the same thing. And there seems to be no end to our wonderings or our wanderings. We ask all kinds of questions. What if, I mean, I was, you could go A to Z and just be thinking of things. What about baptism? What about communion? What about denominations? What about evolution? What about, I mean, what, just keep going. There's all kinds of things we wonder about. But there's one thing that is more important, one question that's more important that Jesus asks here than all other questions. What do you think about the Christ? And how you answer that question is the difference between heaven and hell. It's the difference between life and death. It's the difference between being saved and being damned. There is no more important question that we could be confronted with. What do you think about the Christ? And brothers and sisters, if you're looking for the wrong Savior, you're not going to see Him. If you think your greatest problem, like the Pharisees, is government oppression, and you're looking for an answer to that, you're not going to see Jesus. Or if you think your greatest problem is some trial you're walking through. We've, we face real challenges. We have real problems. The, the effects of the fall, the curse, they're everywhere. And we have to deal with that. But that is not our greatest problem. The, the failures of our, our own uh, relational relationships that fall apart, children that are wayward, death, all of these things, serious things, sickness, all, financial challenges, security, all things that, that matter. They're, they're not insignificant, but they're not the one thing we need to deal with, and that is our sin before a holy God. And the only answer to that problem that we face is found in Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can save. You see, we can, we can interact with Jesus. We can see him perform miracles. We can see him brilliantly answer questions, yet still fail to understand just who he is and what he has come to do. And we should be sobered by this reality. We can come to church every Sunday and sit under God's word. We can read the Bible from cover to cover again and again and fail to recognize who Jesus is. And so we have to recognize that what matters to us today is not so much what the Pharisees think of Jesus. What matters is what you think of Jesus. What do you think about the Christ? 
Do you know the Christ, the, the promised one, the Son of David who has come, the Son of God who has come and taken away the sins of the world? Listen to what the writer of Hebrews, how the writer of Hebrews describes Jesus at, at the outset, Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is Jesus Christ. He is the hope of the world. He is our only hope. And so, brothers and sisters, come to him. Recognize who he is and come to him in repentance and in faith, knowing that what he has done can completely atone for your sins, can completely reconcile and redeem you to God. So thanks be to God for what he has done, and and thanks be to God for his mercy. You see, God is still speaking today. He's still asking this question, what do you think about the Christ? It's interesting that, that here at this point in Matthew, this is, this is the last point that Jesus interacts with the Pharisees. This is the last time he does. And in his mercy, this is the question he comes with, what do you think about the Christ? Now, it's likely that in Jerusalem at that time, there was one Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, who was there, who was rejecting this Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, and who continued to reject him and his followers, yet who Jesus appeared to on the Damascus Road, and who turned from his sins and found his, his story, that he was writing all on his own as a Pharisee of Pharisees, he found his story as one where he died and his life was found with Christ in God. And so may we all, May we all be incorporated into this astonishing story of mercy and grace that God is writing throughout all of history. And may we be His worshipers forevermore. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for sending Your Son, Jesus Christ, for promising that a deliverer would come to crush the head of the serpent, for promising that one day all of His enemies will be put under His feet. And for coming to us as the Word made flesh. Thank you that, God, we can know you and see you because you speak to us. It's not something we can do on our own, but by your Spirit, you speak. You speak through your Word. And so, Lord, would you, would you continue to soften our hearts and open our eyes to your Holy Word that we may know Jesus Christ, the Son of David and the Son of God. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.